Well, good morning. I'm Bill Bider. I'm one of your elders here at Lion and Lamb, and this is week three of a six-week series that we've entitled Here We Stand, and uh, all of the elders are going to be sharing in this. I, maybe not Bart, but the rest of us are going to be sharing in this teaching time, and uh, this is really for us to present uh, the essentials, what we believe here at Lion and Lamb. And it really is a two-year type project that we've taken on. Uh, but if you come to all of the uh, 12 lessons that are taught in the fall, you will end up getting most of what those essentials are and what we believe. And today, I'm going to be teaching about what we here at Lion and Lamb believe about the book of Genesis. And I've, I've thought that uh, this lends itself to, t to some PowerPoint visuals. So I will be showing some pictures here today. And if there are still some people downstairs, it looks to me like we could accommodate at least uh, 10 or 12 or more up here. If anybody wants to still come up, that's okay, even during this time. Because I think they will contribute some to the understanding of what I'm going to be teaching on today. So let's go ahead and pray, and I'll open up here. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for... Um, this church, for all those who are willing to serve, for those guys who scrambled this morning to just fix the problems we were experiencing technologically. And just thank you for their willingness to serve in that way with that expertise. Pray, Lord, that you would show us something here this morning in the book of Genesis, which is so foundational to our faith, that we would come away uh, with a better grasp of just what it is that you have provided here in this book that is so important to what we believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. I would say every one of you know that the reliability of Genesis is under attack, and it has been for probably 200 years or more. We have schools and universities that teach history and science that is in obvious conflict with the stories of Genesis. It's added to by these government-run museums, such as the Smithsonian Institute. If you've ever gone through it, you would see more of the same. What they teach is definitely different than what you would take out of the Bible if you have a literal interpretation or if you accept the history of Genesis. And we get more of it in books and movies and TV. And we have something else called the liberal church, which I'm going to talk more about that is also really an enemy of the taking Genesis as literal history, and, and I'll get into that a little bit more. If you are one of those people who believes that the Genesis story should be taken literally, you're likely to be ridiculed, called naive. You may even have uh, career opportunities impacted. If you want to get into any kind of science, technology, teaching, field, there's a good chance if you have made it known that you believe the stories of Genesis are true, that's going to impact your ability in those areas. I've seen it. And so uh, there's even another side to this. You may be hearing nowadays, if you're somebody who will teach such things to your kids, you might be considered dangerous to society, maybe even a child abuser. Some of you may have heard people like Bill Nye the Science Guy or Richard Dawkins or some other famous people who are anti-Bible 
say such things. So uh, you're becoming a smaller and smaller group in our society when you say, I trust Genesis. I, I think it's reliable history. But all this criticism of Genesis really began in the early 1800s. There was an idea that a geologist called Charles Lyell came up with that slow, uniform processes of what makes all the rocks look like they look, the mountains, the valleys, everything we see, has been millions of years at work. Slow, uniform processes. And then Darwin took it, and he applied that same concept to life, living things. He said slow, uniform processes took the first single-celled organisms and created you, people over millions and millions of years. That's what we really uh, have seen as the start of the sophisticated opposition to the stories of Genesis. So God was no longer needed in the picture. We had uniform scientific processes occurring, uh, both with respect to the non-living and the living things that we see. So evolution has creative power, is what that came down to be. So that's what really got us sort of to where we are today, and th these forces at work have gotten stronger and stronger over all that time. So really from the beginning of time, though, we know that Satan has been planting seeds of doubt, and it began in the Garden of Eden, but those seeds of doubt continue to be spread, and they get spread on different types of people, and everybody really fits into these three categories that you see up there. You've got unbelievers, you've got the liberal church, which I hesitate to call Christians, there may be Christians in that liberal church, but the lack of discernment makes you wonder. But then for sure you've got the Christian side. And if the unbelievers have these seeds of doubt plant, spread out upon them, what you're going to end up with is just more hardening of that opinion that everything in the Bible, whether it's Genesis or the rest, is myth, fable, nonsense. Liberal, liberal church, on the other hand, has a tendency to compromise, to reinterpret Scripture. And what they end up with is instead of saying Genesis and a lot of the rest of Scripture is literal history when it's obviously written as history, they'll turn it into allegory, poetry, symbolism, things like that. And what we end up with is a loss of the foundational ideas that affect a lot of what we believe in our faith. Christians, on the other hand, they may be immature or mature. When these seeds of doubt are spread upon them, there can be confusion that results. Some of them may tend towards this allegory, poetry, symbolism. But then you've got those who stand firm. And um, I would like to say that I think that our leadership, and probably most of you, have decided this is a decision to stand firm in the word. And we do accept that here, and uh, that's a really important part of what we believe. Now, this is dangerous, this attack on Genesis, because you may say, oh, the liberal church says some of these things, it's okay that to, to interpret those as allegory or it's just symbolic, a lot of the stories of Genesis. But when you start doing that, to Genesis, what about a lot of the rest of Scripture? What about things like the reality of heaven and hell, or the miracles of Jesus, or his virgin birth, or his resurrection? They're all supernatural too, because the tendency in the liberal church is to throw out everything that is supernatural and cling to what is only natural. 
And so when we start throwing out the things of Genesis, because there is a lot of supernatural in those stories, in that history, then why not throw out the supernatural in all of those other things? So it becomes very dangerous to proceed down that pathway. Now let's turn to a little more background about Genesis. Because what we really have here, uh, I think I just went past that. No. Um, what does Genesis mean? The word Genesis, it's a Greek word, and it means beginning, source, root, origin, start, birth, creation, dawn. And it's the first of five books that are generally attributed to Moses. And all five of those books in combination, we really have three different words that are used. You've got the Greek word Pentateuch, that stands for those five books, Torah, which would be the Hebrew word, that stands for those same five books, but some say Torah has broader meaning. It may even include some oral, oral, uh, oral information too. But then the law, and that's what Jesus used when he referred back to these five books. And uh, the Jews actually, some may still call that this word Bereshit, and that actually means in the beginning, the very first verse, as you all know, of the Bible is, in the beginning, Bereshit, if we would use their word for all three of those, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's what they call that book. Maybe not all of them. Maybe some of them are using the word Genesis now. But that does have that meaning. And some believe the word Genesis for the book was first used, although this is uncertain, when a priest named Jerome translated the Bible into Latin in 400 AD. Now, who's the author of Genesis? Since, you know, we're talking this morning about Genesis and what we believe about it, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what a lot of you normally think of when we say, let's have a study on Genesis. We're going to talk about creation and evolution and all the fallacies and all that. I'm not going to hit on that much this morning. Instead, I want to talk more big picture of what Genesis is for us and means for us. So author, who wrote Genesis? Well, some would say maybe God wrote it because didn't he inspire all scripture? Uh, in fact, we have Peter and Paul saying all scripture is God-breathed or inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, then we have Peter saying that God's word spoken through his prophets were the result of them being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we could always say God wrote it, but a man still put it down. And so we've got the question, did Moses write it? Was he the one who recorded it? Before we get into why I believe that that's true, Moses wrote it, let's look at what that liberal church that I've defined says. That liberal church, again, tries to get away from a lot of such things that they have something called a documentary hypothesis, which would they do not agree, agree that Moses wrote it, that they believe it was written about a thousand years after Moses and it had been corrupted. Um, the truth had been corrupted and incorporated into the book that was written about a thousand years after Moses. On the other hand, the conservative church would believe that Moses did write it. He wrote it probably during the Exodus uh, from Egypt, during those 40 years wandering, along with the other books. And so uh, there's another part of the reason that is so 
important with respect to saying, I believe Moses wrote Genesis, it's because we have evidence from what Jesus taught that he believed that Moses wrote it. And I've got a couple verses to look at here to kind of confirm that. In John 5, 46, Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, you may say, where did Moses write of Jesus? Well, one place in Genesis, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, God was speaking to Satan after he had deceived Adam and Eve, and he said, I will put enmity meaning hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm going to come back more to that verse as to why that is speaking of Jesus uh, a little later. But there was another time that Jesus uh, taught that Moses was the author of Genesis. And this was from Mark 10. In 3 through 8, and I'm going to read part of that. What did Moses command you? From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is obviously quoting from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, and he's attributing that to Moses' words, Moses' teaching. Not only is he saying in this little passage that Moses wrote those verses in Genesis, but he is saying he supports marriage between a man and a woman, and I'm also going to return to that a little bit um, later when I talk about some application points out of Genesis. Now, I'm going to just quickly go over a couple ideas here about why I believe Genesis was really written for believers, not fools. Fools in the sense of how the Bible uses the term fool, and we'll define that a little bit better here in a a minute. But Moses made no effort to prove the existence of God. He just came right out and assumed that you believed that when you were reading the verses right from the start. In the beginning, God created. He doesn't try to use apologetics or trouble himself with any of that. And I believe he probably thought a whole lot like David did in Psalm 14.1, when he said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So here we get an idea of how the Bible defines fool as the person who denies the existence of God. And why did Moses think it wasn't necessary to convince his readers right off the bat that God is real and that God exists? Well, probably because he also agreed with what David had written in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 4, that say, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the heaven. The creation speaks for itself. And so we have, as Romans 1 says, there's no excuse for not believing in God. In fact, Romans 1.20 in total, affirming that truth, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Again, the creation speaks this clearly. And he really saw no reason or need to explain how God did it. 
Sometimes we do, and there's nothing wrong with investigating a lot of these ideas that the intelligent design community gets into, but Moses didn't trouble himself with that again. It was just God, let it be, or let. If you read chapter 1 of Genesis, it has something to do with his will and his speaking it to be, so that it became so. And that is emphasized in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That was enough. That's enough for us, really. It's fine to investigate and think about those ideas about creation. But really, that's what he wants us to believe, that he created it. And I confess, sometimes I have have tried to figure such things out myself and evaluated and studied those kind of things. But, but when you try to do that for the purposes of learning enough to convince someone else that this is true, I, I've learned from experience that that alone doesn't usually work. And why is that? It's because it takes faith. Faith has to come into play. Hebrews 11.3 says, It's by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. So my argument to my unbelieving co-worker about how, all, how Noah built the ark and all those animals got on the ark and how it could work, that isn't alone probably going to change that person, even though I can come up with some pretty good scientific arguments. Faith comes into the picture, has to come into the picture for that person to truly change. And only God can do that because faith is a gift of God. But it also comes, it says in Romans 10, from hearing the word. Faith comes from hearing the word. And that hearing the word isn't only me preaching what the Bible says, opening to this verse and reading it to them. Them hearing the word are those same thing that David said in Psalm 19 about the voice going out into all the earth. That too, it says the, their words to the end of the earth. So creation itself speaks words as well. All of that is speaking those words that have the potential with uh, God working in the life of that person to change them. So, real quick, foolish people have rejected the obvious. They've traded truth for a lie because they love darkness more than light. They've been blinded by the God of this world. They have been taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition and the spiritual forces of the world. And, uh, again, this term fool... In Romans 1.22, they claimed to be wise, but instead they became fools. Those people who have denied that God exists have traded all of the truth. They have rejected those words that are being spoken to the ends of the earth and, uh, and rejected it. So Genesis to them is foolishness. Okay. I'm going to, real quick, I'm not going to spend any time on these historical events of Genesis. I'm going to just list some things that you can believe are real history that are in Genesis. The days of creation, six days of creation. Adam and Eve, they were real people. 
They did not evolve. They were created as people. That's what the Bible tells us. That's an event. God created Adam from the dust, and he created Eve from his rib. Adam and Eve were tempted by a real being, Satan, portrayed as a serpent in Genesis. They sinned. That sin in the garden was a real event, and that sin turned into a real consequence. The fall, the curse, the, cre the creation in its totality is now cursed. A few other things from Genesis that is real history, Noah's Ark and the worldwide flood. That is real history. Worldwide flood, Noah had to build an ark as instructed by God to save air-breathing creatures. The Tower of Babel, because of pride and idolatry, there was a tower being built by Nimrod and his followers. God was displeased with that, and he confused their language, and they dispersed to form the nations. God made promises to Abraham, conditional and unconditional promises. That was, Abraham was a real person, so were his, his son, Isaac, and then his son, Jacob. Sodom and Gomorrah, a city that was filled with immoral practices, different sexual immorality primarily. God was displeased and he destroyed that city. The origin of the Jewish nation is also important history. Okay, the rest of my time, I'm going to shift to five applications, and that's going to end my teaching time today. Um, the first application that I'd like to talk about is the significance of humans in God's creation. Looking back at uh, Genesis 1.27, we, we can read, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Humans hold a unique position with respect to all of God's creation. Only humans were made in God's image. As big and diverse as our universe is, and complex and intricate, humans carry some special standing. God is more mindful of mankind because we're made in his image. And David emphasized this special status as well. In Psalm 139, uh, he said that humans are knit together by God in the womb and fearfully and wonderfully made. When you Read these verses about created in his image, knit together in God's womb, human while in the womb. How can anyone who claims to be a Christian look at this picture, read those verses, and support abortion? One of those cultural issues that, uh, that plague us. Also, another aspect of human significance. God gave humans a special role and authority. He's, in Genesis 1.28, he said, Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have a, a higher role in the creation to care for what he has given us, but also to have dominion over it. And Jesus added to that specialness in the Sermon on the Mount when he was one time comparing the birds of the air to humans. And he said, are you not much more valuable than they? So Jesus affirms this role and this significance. All of this about the significance of mankind would make very little sense if we were just another animal that evolved over many 
millions of years. The next application, God made humans male and female. Some of you probably participated in Sunday school, probably half of you, and uh, we're talking about this issue to this week and next as well in Sunday school. But back to Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, he created them male and female. So Genesis establishes foundational truth regarding human sexuality and the distinct male and female identities. Sexual identity is permanently established at conception. It cannot be altered no matter what. We are what we are at the time of conception. There's confusion, as we talked about in Sunday school. Our culture adds to the confusion very much so that we, uh, we, all, we encourage people, young people especially are being encouraged to look into what are you really? What is your identity? So we've, we've got a real problem going on in our culture at this time, but Genesis seems clear as can be that God thought it was a very good thing to have males and females. And then a lot of the rest of the scripture talks about those different roles for males and females. So all attempts to redefine sexuality or to confuse people to be doing just that, trying to evaluate your sexual identity, is all has an origin back with the father of lies. And what is one of his major goals, Satan? It's to destroy what God believes is best and good for us. And he appeals to the lust of the flesh with so much of this. That's what this is. This is an appeal to the lust of the flesh. His goal is really to destroy what God considers best. The speed that this is happening in our culture is just mind-boggling, really, isn't it? Because in the last few years is when most of the shift appears to have taken place. It's pretty obvious that our nation is being fundamentally changed as we have been promised. And this is one of those areas of fundamental change that's going on. So the proponents of these fine-sounding arguments that are being made, and Larry talked about some of these in Sunday school today, things like love between two consenting adults or civil rights or other fine-sounding arguments that, that are being made uh, we've been warned about fine-sounding arguments that are based on the wisdom of the world, and this is one of them. But despite these fine-sounding arguments, the words of the Old and New Testament are clear as can be, as Larry said today, that homosexuality is an abomination to God. What is an abomination? Do you want to be involved in something that God considers an abomination? An abomination is something that causes disgust or hatred. That's the definition of the word abomination. How could anyone want to be acting in a way that would cause God to see you in that way? So, I guess that's enough on that topic, and there'll be more next week in Sunday School. Kent's going to be teaching a little further on this issue. The third application that uh, God has established Israel as a nation with special, a special role in his plan. 
Genesis gives us all the history on the origin of this Jewish nation, the Israel, the Jews, the Hebrew, Hebrew people, whatever way you would like to think of them, they're all the same. In Genesis, we find that it all began with Abraham and his uh, son Isaac, and then his Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. In the book of Genesis, he was given that name, and Israel now is the name we use for that nation. And he had 12 sons, and that made 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes make up the nation of Israel, which still have identity, if you read Romans 11. Now, the importance of Israel I'm not going to get into right now, just that the foundation for Israel is established in the book of Genesis. There were these eternal, unconditional promises that God made to Israel in the book of Genesis, such as a land promise, a large population of Jews in the in the future would come. Now, Genesis, I'm not sure I could find the verse to point to that talks about ultimate spiritual life coming to the land of Israel, but I will say other parts of Scripture certainly point to it. Some of the best places to look for this spiritual life coming into a nation which thus far doesn't have it. Thus far, Israel continues as a whole, to live in a state of unbelief or disbelief. But it's coming. God is going to work in the lives of that nation. Ezekiel 36, 37, Jeremiah 31, and Romans 11 are some of the best places to turn to get that message out of the Bible that says their day is coming when Israel will turn to God and spiritual life will enter into that nation as a whole. Application 4. The gospel is proclaimed in Genesis in, in a kind of hazy, mysterious way. Hard to understand way for some people. And I'll just quick go over that. Genesis 3.15, which we already read. I'll read it one more time. And I will put enmity, again, that means hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, it's not only speaking of Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, but in a way it presents a part of the gospel message. Here Satan is talking, I mean, uh, God is talking to Satan after he deceived Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and creation had been cursed. Now Satan's seed, meaning his offspring, when we say seed, some translations use the word offspring, his children. Jesus talked about who are the children of Satan, John chapter 8. And uh, he, he actually said that the Pharisees, your father is the devil. And uh, those who follow after his ways and uh, follow God's ways is one way to put that. But that his offspring, uh, that's what that means. The woman that we're talking about here uh, is Eve, and we're talking her seed. Who is her seed? Well, in this case, it's Jesus, the Messiah. And why, and how do we know that? Well, because this is the seed of the woman only. You know, we are, we always say, Adam, our father. 
We're all descended from Adam. Jesus is not descended from Adam. Eve was his mother. God was his father. Jesus, she was a virgin when Jesus was born. Jesus is the only person who ever lived that did not have Adam as a father. Isaiah 7.14 refers to that virgin birth where he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the seed we're talking about here. So this seed is going to heat. Satan is going to bruise the seed of Eve's heel. And Jesus is going to bruise or crush Satan's head, is what this prophecy says. So what we have here is actually something saying that, yes, Jesus is going to be bruised. He's going to suffer, and that suffering uh, would include dying on the cross, but yet he rose victoriously. It was not a victory for Satan. It was a victory for Jesus. And Jesus crushing his head or bruising his head is actually uh, a permanent victory because the head is critical to the whole life. And so what this is saying is that Jesus, some would say he's already had that victory, and he has had some victory with the resurrection, but it's going to reach finality when he returns and throws Satan into the lake of fire. So we get a glimpse of the gospel message here in Genesis. So application five. Uh, Genesis doesn't say a whole lot about the condition of paradise because it lasted so short a time period. Um, before sin came into the world, we don't get a whole glimpse of it, but it does give us a little glimpse of that paradise where God would be living with us in this state of paradise. We know that's what the original state was. God called it very good conditions. Uh, he defined his entire creation as very good, but then sin came in to the world and eliminated that. And creation has all been groaning under that bondage to decay since that time. But Revelation explains that God will restore the paradise that was lost, that had been originally created in Genesis. And this will be at the fulfillment of all things. We really do have to turn to Revelation to find that. And that's the way I'm going to wrap up here today, by uh, Genesis points forward as well as giving us what happened at the beginning but Revelation uh, 21 and 22, I've got a couple verses that I'd like to read to kind of end that gets back to this uh, return or restoration of paradise that we had at the very beginning. So Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, Behold, the taber tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. And be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And from Revelation 22:3 it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. So this is a very quick overview of a lot of some of the important points of Genesis, some things that are in there, some things we can take away that, that mean a lot to us uh, living today.
We need to know what Genesis says. We need to believe what it says. We need to take literally what we should take literally. We need to not be ashamed to teach it to our children or defend it wherever necessary. And most of all, uh, I think we need to love the book of Genesis. I know I do. It's, it's one of those books that meant an awful lot to me early in my Christian walk. And, um, and it is good to study Genesis in, uh, for believers especially to study Genesis along with some of the apologetic arguments that we have seen uh, from various organizations to help us have a greater degree of confidence in what we have there. So I do encourage you to look at those other things as well but, uh, because they do support the, uh, the literal acceptance and reliability of the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Um, for what you have revealed to us in the book of Genesis about the history of uh, creation of the nation of Israel for establishing foundations that we know are so important to what we believe about things like salvation, resurrection, and then ultimately you're just bringing back the paradise that was lost when we sinned. We thank you, Lord, for um, showing us in creation that, uh, that you are real. We thank you for giving us the special revelation of your word that confirms this in a way that we can better get to know you. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just blessing us in the ways that you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.